I do invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We're covering a larger section today, verses 17 through 31. Um, so as you turn there, let me just say it's been, it's been uh, good. It, it feels good to be with you again and to work through God's Word to learn more about Jesus. I think it's been one of my greatest privileges since I've been here to go verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark and to learn with you along the way about uh, what we can see. Especially so because we can see more about Jesus, uh, our Savior. And uh, it's just been joyous having never preached through a gospel the whole way before. I still haven't made it the whole way either. But uh, having never made it the whole way through before, it's just been a joy to be able to uh, learn more about Jesus with you and discover it along the way with you. We're in the middle of the gospel in a large section where Jesus is predicting his own death. He does so on three occasions in Mark 8, 9, and 10. After he predicts his death, uh, in each one of those cases, the disciples immediately fail. And it's actually good for us that they failed because Jesus responds in each case by giving more teaching about what it means to be a follower of his. And so we come to these chapters, Mark 8, 9, and 10, to learn more about what it takes, what it should look like to be a follower of Jesus. And today, we come to the end of his special instruction uh, in the second uh, major part of this, this uh, second prediction of his death and teaching, to where he gives his attention on to wealth and riches. So in this passage, Jesus is going to use a conversation with a rich young ruler to teach his disciples, and us by extension through the word, uh, uh, about this difficult subject. I think most of us if we're truthful and honest, really don't like sermons about material possessions. Now, I think that this subject, though, is important for us, perhaps more so than uh, maybe even ever before. As uh, in our culture today, there are various money addictions. Money addictions have been never so prevalent as they are in our culture. Our addiction to money is at the root of many sorts of problems and issues in our life. It can lead to overworking. We just work and work. We take on the second and third and fourth jobs so that we work more time so we get more money, more money to accumulate to ourselves. I think our addiction to money is at the root of our over shopping or our extravagant shopping or extravagant travels. We just need a little bit more money, a little bit more money so I can buy more in the store, so I can go more places and visit places in, in this life. I think the love of money is at the root of our uh, excessive savings and sometimes. Sometimes you say excessive savings. Yeah, I think there can be that, perhaps. Excessively scrimping and saving and collecting, gathering so that we become more and more secure. I think our love of money is at the root of our reluctance to give to the church, to the poor and the needy and the vulnerable or disadvantaged in this world. I think we want a nest egg, that we, and we want it to grow more and more, and we conveniently ignore the pangs of our conscience when it comes to give back to God. At times we hope that our spouse or parents don't say anything about the money we got. So we don't have to give something to Jesus, to the Lord, and make it obvious that we're scheming or plotting with our money. I think it's, it's very possible for people who've been redeemed 
people who have said Jesus is enough to revert back to a place where they are making idols out of money again. So as we come to the story of the rich young ruler, I think we'll learn some valuable lessons from his failure here. Jesus' teaching about wealth, as I see it, comes in three discussions that he has in this text. And so, very simple outline. We follow these three discussions. We learn more about what Jesus says about wealth and the kingdom of God. The first discussion is verses 17 through 24. Jesus has a discussion with a rich man about eternal life. Look in your Bible, verse 17. It says, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go. Sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This first discussion here, Jesus interacts with a man about how to gain eternal life. A few weeks ago, we learned that when in, in these chapters, when Mark is going back and forth, when he's talking about eternal life, it's another way of saying entering the kingdom of God, that they're synonymous terms. To enter the kingdom of God in these chapters means to enter eternal life. And so last week, we saw that Jesus said, for one to enter the kingdom, they must become vulnerable and dependent like a small child. Remember, parents were bringing infants or babies to Jesus, and Jesus uses that as an opportunity to talk about the sort of people that God will accept into his kingdom. God accepts those who are helpless to secure their own salvation, but come to Jesus for help. And so in our text today, as we learn about the rich young ruler, we're coming to a stark contrast to the previous example of the childlike faith that has been manifested in the earlier passages. So this guy's the exact opposite of the children. That's one way of saying that. Okay, so I want to look a little closer at what our text says about this man, though. In this text, we learn that he's a man, he's a ruler. In the parallel text in Matthew, there's a parallel count there in that gospel, we learn that he is young. And in another parallel count in Luke's gospel, this is found in three gospels, this story, we find out that this man was a ruler, hence the title that you probably have heard much throughout your life, the rich young ruler, okay? This man has everything that perhaps any of us in our hearts might desire. He has wealth, he has youth and strength, he's got power, authority, and status, In fact, as I look at this text, it does not appear to me that this man has even gained his wealth in unjust practices, Uh, like some others in the New Testament you could come across. For instance, Zacchaeus, remember him? Uh, Zacchaeus was a miserable little cheat, Uh, right? Miserable little cheat. That's how he got his money, right? He cheated people out on fair tax practices to get all of his money. We're not aware of anything like that of this man. As a matter of fact, the text, if you keep reading in the text, you you find out that this man was concerned to obey the law of Moses. 
And so as we come to this rich young ruler, in some ways he might be seen as a most desirable recruit for the kingdom of God. I mean, it would not surprise us as we're reading along to hear Jesus you know, think or say, this is the kind of recruit that I'm looking for. You know, not like the clowns who've been following me around. You know, the 12 who like keep uh, complaining, keep arguing about who's the greatest, who keep failing tasks with bread and children. I mean, like this guy's got it all together. But we know, of course, what might appear to be ideal is not always the case. So as we look at this first exchange that he has with Jesus, it starts with him running to Jesus and falling before him. See, this rich young ruler running and falling before him. I think the man is genuine or sincere in his request. Then he calls Jesus a good teacher, and he asks him how he might inherit eternal life. And before Jesus answers his question, he, has, he takes a little bit of offense at the title that's ascribed to him for some reason, okay, and uh, he, you know, he's correcting the man's theology a bit. It's specifically his anthropology, his view of men. And Jesus says no one is good except God. I don't think that Jesus is in any way denying his deity here. I think he would know that he is a good teacher. But he's correcting the man's theology. I think that the man might believe that inheriting life has something to do with one's personal inherent goodness. And so Jesus informs him, no person is good but God. Only God is absolutely good. Having corrected his theology, Jesus answers a man's question in a surprising way. man says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And instead of saying, repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, right, which is the message we've been taught that we understand as being the only way of salvation. Jesus says to the man, you know what to do. He says, particularly in this text, you know the commandments. In the parallel text in, I think, Matthew's gospel, it says that Jesus tells him, keep the commandments. Not you know the commandments, keep the commandments. And, uh, and so then Jesus begins to give him a list of some of those commandments. And what's interesting to me is you look down through that list uh, in this text of what he gives him. He gives him six out of the ten commandments. Commandments five through ten. Basically, the second tablet of the ten commandments that were given by God through Moses to the children of Israel in the Old Testament. The second table of the commandments. Now, hearing Jesus' statement about keeping the commandments... The man starts the next phrase of the conversation in verse 20. So look down your Bible again at verse 20. There's only two things the man actually says to Jesus in Mark's account. Mark 20, he says, teacher. He's quickly dropped the good. He's a quick learner, unlike the disciples. I could imagine them probably saying at this point, good teacher. <laughs> he says, teacher, all these things I've done since my youth. Now, it's hard to know for sure. I don't think we can know for sure what Jesus thought about this man's statement. He lists six of the Ten Commandments, and the man says, I've done all these since the time I was a youth. Perhaps Jesus thought, yeah, right. No one obeys the spirit and intent of all these laws. Or perhaps the young man was right according to legalistic righteousness, like Paul could say even in Philippians 3, according to the law, blameless. 
Maybe according to external circumstances and measures of these six commandments, a man can say this. Regardless, Jesus does not correct them here, but he proceeds in a very interesting direction. He turns the conversation in a pointed direction by dropping a bombshell on the man. He says, there's one thing you lack. And then Jesus gives him four imperatives. Four imperatives. Go. Go away. Sell all that you have. Give. Give it to the poor. And you'll have inheritance in heaven. And come follow me. He says there's one thing you lack. Jesus gives him these four imperatives. The first three are negative. Go away, sell your stuff, give the proceeds to the poor. The last one is positive, then follow me. And come get in line and follow me. I think at this point I want to give you some points of explanation, explanation, at least according to how I would interpret this text. I think Jesus understands here that this man loves and trusts in riches more than he loves and trusts in God. I think Jesus is functioning here. The, the illustration I think of in my mind is he's like a skilled physician who's able to properly diagnose what's going on with the body. You know, a skilled physician, you, you say you got some pain in your leg, and he takes one look, he starts feeling around, and starts, okay, it's not in the hip, it's not in the knee, and then he puts his finger exactly on the problem after time. He figures it all out. I think what Jesus is doing here is he's putting his finger right on the soul of the guy, and he knows what his issue is. Jesus knows that the man struggles with the first tablet of the Ten Commandments, the first table. Ten Commandments start in this way. We must not have any other gods. Second one, we must not make any graven images. No idols. I think what Jesus is doing here is he is smashing this man's idol. He's attempting to do so. This man is about his stuff. He's made an idol out of his money and his possessions. Another way of saying this is the man fails in the greatest commandment. For Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And so Jesus says, I want all your wealth. I want all your wealth if you'll be a follower of mine. I like how one commentator, Daniel Aiken, uh, described this here. He says, Jesus said to the rich young ruler, I want you to imagine life without money. All you have is me. Is that enough? And all that is left in this text is a response of the rich young ruler, and that is, in verse 22, we can see that the text says he was disheartened. This could be translated, he was shocked or stunned by the bombshell that Jesus left on. He was bewildered, you could say. And he left in sorrow because the text says that he had many possessions. He had much wealth. And this is how this story ends with the rich young ruler. I want to make just a few applications before we proceed to the next discussion here. I think, first, I think it's interesting that we normally define, these are just application thoughts, but I think it's interesting that we normally define those who are rich as those who've earned more or have more than we do. Okay, I think that uh, that's just our natural tendency. So like we can read a text about riches and we always think that it's someone other than us, that we don't qualify for that. However, I'll, I'll just 
I remind you of what one author said about this text. He says, even those who would consider themselves poor in modern Western society live at a level which would have been unimaginable to most of Jesus's hearers. So I think it's very easy for us to look at a text like this, say, well, this is about a rich young ruler. This has nothing to do with me at all because I'm not rich. And the point France would make here, this author would say, you know what, we're all rich according to standards of the first century. Second, I think it's also interesting that the ones of us who often spend the most time thinking and daydreaming about money are the ones who don't have much of it. We think what it'd be like to have more. We think what it'd be like to have that house or car or financial freedom from debt. Perhaps even some of the poor, poor by our standards in our assembly are ensnared with the love of money. The love of money is the what? The root of all evils. So I don't think you have to be rich to be ensnared by the love of money, the root of all evils. And finally, I think we should say as we're working our way through the text and we're considering this man as in a moment of application here, that it's not a sin to have money or to maintain some possession in this world. There are people who maintain possessions. There are people who have houses. Peter himself has a house that Jesus is probably using from time to time as he goes into Galilee. Instead, in this text, Jesus is going after an area of idolatry in the man's life. And I will say this, if money or anything else for that matter is more important to you than Jesus, you should give it away and pursue him. You say, that's really radical. I say, well, what are we actually even talking about here when we talk about money? Little pieces of paper and metal. When I was young, I used to enjoy playing the game of Monopoly. I was an only child. Of course, that meant my mother had to play all kinds of board games with me. Spend lots of time with me. Um, I, I mean, I lived for playing Monopoly. You could ask my mother to this day. I think at one point she probably either buried or burned the board uh, just to get some sort of rescue, uh, relief from this. So I was thinking about that this morning. I, 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 would, I remember stacking and hoarding my money, you know, putting it together and organizing it and put it in just certain ways. Now uh, we have a board game, and it's Monopoly, and it uses credit cards. I'm like, oh, this is teaching my kids great lessons uh, about life here. As I look back on, on that, I think, you know, what an incredible waste of my aspirations, dreams, and focus. It was just fake little pieces of paper. I couldn't help but think, you know what, I think when we're in heaven, I think some of us might look back on our life and say, what an incredible waste of my aspirations and talents to just be so concerned about little pieces of paper and metal. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 37, verse 25. Do you know this text? I was young and am old, and I've not seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. God will take care of you. Oftentimes I think we're much like the rich young ruler. We'd be disheartened. So as we go through this text, Although Jesus leaves the rich young ruler, he's not done talking about money. Next part of the text, he has a discussion with the disciples. So look in your Bible, verses 23 through 27, for his discussion with the disciples. It says, And Jesus looked around 
and said to the disciples how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Okay, we're going to work really quickly through this text, but I think that there will be some important points here that we can learn. Here, Jesus is making a point. He's driving home a point with his disciples about how difficult it is for a rich person to enter God's kingdom or eternal life in heaven. And uh, this is so because it's difficult for a rich man or a rich woman to recognize that they are helpless and completely and utterly dependent upon God as well. It's very easy for them to take confidence or security in their own wealth or provision. So Jesus is going to work through this. I think what he's going to do here is remind the disciples of something. He reminds them of the fact that those who enter God's kingdom are helpless like little children. And one of the ways he reminds them is the title he gives them in verse 24, children. I think that's intentional from Jesus and Mark to remind them of the lesson you just learned about the little infants coming to Jesus. Disciples, he's going to say disciples, says children. It should remind them of the helplessness that children have in coming to Jesus. And then to make his point here, he gives a metaphor in verse 25, a very Uh, memorable one, probably one that you've heard some teaching or preaching about before. He says it's easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, now, uh, I'm sure all of us have heard preaching about this this phrase, uh, but I do want to I want to look at it closely. I mean, at first reading, we think, we might think, how ridiculous is that? If you've heard scripture a lot, you've probably heard this metaphor a lot, so maybe it, the fact of its you know, kind of shocking nature doesn't grab you. A camel and a needle's eye. It's so unthinkable, I think, that over the years, many attempts have been made to soften what's going on here, and, and I, I take all the attempts to soften it in two categories. Some, some people try to reduce the size of the camel, or if that doesn't work, they enlarge the, the, the eye of the needle. For instance, one of the most common teachings that uh, many people, I think, in our orb or circle uh, believe is that this is, uh, is, is really based, I think, on a false understanding of this metaphor. It was in the 11th century, about a thousand years after Jesus said these and Mark wrote these words, that an interpreter suggested that the eye of a needle refers to a gate in Jerusalem, a small little gate. And so the way this false metaphor goes is if a camel would bow down and take off his load, he could barely squeeze through this small little gate called the eye of a needle in Jerusalem. The problem with the view, though, is that this view is without any justification or evidence from anything near the first century. As a matter of fact, the proof or evidence we have clearly suggests something different. I think it's a clever suggestion, but there's no proof for it. Not to mention, it would be ridiculous for a man to be approaching Jerusalem and think, I need a gate to get my camel through and choose the smallest one. (laughs) I thought, well, yeah, okay, this could be fun. I'll take that, like, little wee hole over here and 
Let's see if we can squeeze them through. Instead, it is better to take this text exactly as it's written. A literal camel and a literal eye of a needle. You say, well, that would be totally impossible. I say, that's exactly Jesus' point. And it leads the disciples to respond in two ways. They are, first, exceedingly astonished that Jesus would be so difficult on this. Exceedingly astonished are some very strong words that probably reveal to me, I think, that the disciples had a high view of wealth as a sign of God's blessing upon believers. I think the disciples may have been taught that, may have thought that. And and so I I offer you this little bit of proof. I mean, there's more you could say here, but uh, again, one commentator talks about this. He says, in Jewish society in the first century, it was generally taken for granted that wealth was to be welcomed as a mark of God's blessing. Rabbis like Hillel and Akiba, who rose from obscurity and poverty to wealth and influence, are commended without embarrassment. Okay, so I'm not saying that every Jew in the first century thought this, but I'd say many did, and I think the disciples may have thought this as well. Not that wealth was always an indication of God's blessing, but for, for a God-fearing person, I think the disciples probably believed that when God-fearing people were wealthy, it was a sign of God's blessing. And so they're exceedingly astonished. Camel? Needle? How's that affect rich men? And so then they ask the question, well, who then can be saved? It's like a rich man who's experienced God's blessing as a God-fearer can't be saved or delivered. Who can be? Then Jesus directly, dramatically corrects their pessimism in verse 27. I think the key verse of the whole text, verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, with man it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Although it would seem impossible for a rich man like this to get in because he's going to be trusting in his own riches and provisions and so on. Nothing is impossible for God. That is, God can bring about the salvation of any person, any person, regardless of economic status. Of course, this is true of anyone's salvation, right? If any one of us are getting through the eye of that needle, it will require a miracle from God. This leads to one final discussion in verses 28 through 31. I want to look at that. This discussion is with Peter about the value of following Jesus. Look in verse 28. Peter began to say to him, say to him See, if we, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who's left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses, brothers, sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. In this discussion here, Peter acts, I think, as a, uh, one commentator said, he's the ready spokesman of the disciples. He suggests here that disciples have done exactly what Jesus has asked. They have left it all and they've followed him. 
And I think his question, the question from the disciples of Peter here, allows Jesus to answer a very important question. This is the whole reason why I think these verses are in the text. And the question he's going to answer is, why would anyone in their right mind do something as radical and daring as giving it all away and pursuing Jesus? Why would someone do that? And the answer right here in your Bible, my Bible, his answer is, those, is that those who sacrifice all will experience reward both in this life and in the one to follow. He says, those who neglect, goes through a whole list of things, they can expect hundredfold blessings in this life, now in this age, he says. Well, he doesn't explain everything about this. I might have some questions for Jesus on this one. As I'm working through the text trying to figure this out, it seems that what he's saying is if we sacrifice first, if we sacrifice relationships, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, If they cut us off, for some reason following Jesus means we're not as close to them in some way or another, that God will give us a more innumerable family. I couldn't help but think as I'm wrestling through this text this morning, what what innumerable family might God be thinking about here? And I'd just say, for me, the answer would be, I would encourage you just look around. Look around in the congregation brothers and sisters in Christ. I think he's saying, if, and, and, and if we genuinely give up our houses and properties in this world, then God will richly bless us and we will get more than we would ever give up for him. He says all of these blessings are not without issues. Uh, he adds that phrase, with persecutions. I think it's a means of, you know, just helping us. You know, this is not like a prosperity gospel thing that Jesus is saying. Just leave it all, and I'm just going to give you all this stuff. Comes with persecution, reminding us it's not going to be a perfect utopia for us on this planet. I mean, we're going to face difficulties and trials for the cause of Christ, but we can rest assured that he will take care of us. He will provide for us. It will be better for us because we gave up these things than not. And then he advances to answering, I think, the rich young ruler's question at the very beginning of our narrative. Remember, this man came to Jesus as a good teacher. How can I inherit eternal life? And he answers it right here. And in the future, in the age to come, you will get eternal life, Jesus tells the disciples here, Peter here. This man asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, leave it all and follow me. Then if we do this and appear to be last in the world, I think that last verse there, verse 31, is to remind us that one day we will be the first. As we work through this text, I was uh, preparing for the sermon this morning and just kind of thinking through it. And I was just kind of praying through this in my own life. The Lord brought uh, the song, uh, it's by uh, Fernando Ortega, called Give Me Jesus. I just started singing this song and I started thinking about the words of this song. You you perhaps know it. I'm not going to sing it, so don't panic. He says, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. He says, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. When I'm alone, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, 
but give me Jesus. I love the last verse of this song, don't you? And when I come to die, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, just give me Jesus. Men and women, as we come to a text like this one, I think it's good for us. It's good for us who are driven by comfort or possessions or extravagancies or travels or pleasures. This text, and looking at what Jesus says to the rich young ruler, causes us to smash our own idols made out of paper and metal and dirt. Come to Jesus as a small, helpless child to find immeasurable blessings and pleasure and fulfillment in his person, in his being, in relationship to him. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, as we come to this text, it'd be very easy for us to be dismissive of the rich young ruler and our own minds to make all kinds of different reasons why we're not like him at all. He's rich, I'm not. He's young, I'm not. He's an unbeliever, I'm a believer. And fail to learn from what Jesus says to the rich young ruler. But Father, this morning, I pray that you would see through that, you'd help us see through that as well. If any of us have reverted back to making gods out of paper or metal or dirt, would you reveal that to us? And Lord, smash our idols so that Jesus might have first place in our lives. Father, if there's anyone here today under the sound of my voice that has never left it all, repenting of sin and the things that they used to take joy and confidence in and follow Jesus believing in him. That's the only way of salvation. Lord, I pray that before they leave here today, at this moment perhaps, they would bow to you in prayer and confess that today Jesus has been too much for them. Or may we be able to sing the song I sang this morning. You can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. I pray that you would help us to believe that this morning. In Jesus' name.